Let's turn our attention together to Genesis 37. We're beginning a new sermon series on the life of Joseph this morning, and we'll begin in Genesis 37, verses 1 through 11. I read for us. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come down, bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to your word with anticipation, asking that you would speak a word in season to each one of us in this room, through your word and by your spirit. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are starting this new sermon series in the life of Joseph in the latter chapters of Genesis, which will take us through the rest of the spring and through the summer. My aim is, as always, to preach Scripture in such a way that you hear God's voice, not my voice, and then to preach through larger sections of Scripture so that we hear the whole counsel of Scripture, just not my greatest hits of Scripture. And then to preach a balance of Scripture. So uh, we have been in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Mark, since last fall, and um, so I'd like to go to the Old Testament. So why the life of Joseph? Well, for one, I think it's one of the great narratives in the Bible, and I believe it's a story of indestructible hope. There are many dark and despairing chapters in Joseph's story, just like ours. There are many twists and turns in Joseph's story, just like ours. And yet, undergirding this story is an indestructible hope which we need. I think we want to live in a story of indestructible hope, and I think this story, the life of Joseph, will help us. Stories, of course, are important. Our children love stories. Tell me that story again, Mommy. Tell me that story again, Daddy. We hear that refrain constantly as we raise our children. When my daughters were young, at bedtime, I'd make up these stories, and they couldn't get enough of it. Children love stories. And adults love stories. I think it's why we love movies, because it's really essentially immersive storytelling. A lot of times we leave the theater and we feel like we've been in another world. We've been so wrapped up and engulfed in another story. Stories, I would suggest, do more than entertain us. They shape us. 
Alistair McIntyre, the Scottish philosopher, says in his book, After Virtue, that only through narrative does anything become intelligible. Here's the, the vivid example that he gives. He says, I'm, waiting, I'm standing waiting for the bus, and the young man standing next to me suddenly says, the name of the common wild duck is histrionicus, histrionicus, histrionicus. He says, a sentence is intelligible, but the fact of uttering it is absurd. You have no idea what this means, suggests McIntyre, unless you see it in the context of a story. For example, he says, you would suddenly understand this moment if one of the following turned out to be true. He has mistaken me for someone who yesterday had approached him in the library and asked him, do you know the Latin name of the common wild duck? Or he has just come up from a session with a psychotherapist who has urged him to break down his shyness by talking to strangers. But what shall I say? Oh, anything at all. Or he is a Soviet spy waiting at a prearranged rendezvous and uttering the ill-chosen code sentence which will identify him to his contact. You see, in each case, the act of utterance becomes intelligible by finding its place in a story, in a narrative. McIntyre goes on to say this, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? It is through hearing stories about wicked stepmothers and lost children and good but misguided kings and sons who waste their inheritance on riotous living and go into exile to live with the swine that children learn or mislearn both what a child is and what a parent is, what the cast of characters may be in the drama into which they have been born, and what the ways of the world are. Deprive children of stories and you leave them unscripted, anxious stutterers in their actions as in their words. We tell stories, I think, to understand who we are, to understand our place and purpose in the world, our parents tell us stories about themselves and the family into which we are born. They tell us stories about our grandparents in ways that teach us, right, and shape us. Like, uh, now I understand who, who I am and, and, and why we do things the way we do. And the same way God tells us stories about who he is and about who we are that teach us and shape us. I mean, think of this. Almost half of the Bible is narrative, stories. And my hope is that through listening to Joseph's story, we will live into a story of indestructible hope, especially when we're in dark chapters or on winding ways. Perhaps yours is a story of empty success or a story of failed romance or a story of frustrating defeat or a story of despairing disappointment. For all those, I think this sermon series can help us live into a story of indestructible hope. The beginning of this story, which is before us, teaches us that there is hope for broken families. There is hope for broken families. The narrative introduces us to three things. A family that's broken, a God who's at work, and a Savior who redeems. A family that is broken, a God who is at work, and a Savior who redeems. And to see these, we'll have to look at this text through the micro lens, through a macro lens, and then through a super wide angle lens. So let's do that together. First, a family that is broken. 
the writer of Genesis is starting this new narrative, this new story of the life of Joseph, introduces us to the main characters of the story. So since we're going to be in this in, in spring and through into the summer, let's be introduced to the characters of this story. There's Joseph, his brothers, and their dad. And from a distance, this may look like a normal family, but under a micro lens, you begin seeing the dysfunctions. First, let's look at Joseph. He's a young man of 17, so he'd fit right into our student ministry. He tended the flocks with his brothers because they were shepherds, and maybe we can't relate to that as much. I've never tended sheep before in my life. But he brought his father a bad report about his brothers. I mean, the, the literal word here is evil report. It's news slanted to damage. So maybe Joseph exaggerates what his older brothers are doing. In other words, uh, he is a bratty, younger brother tattletale. Can anyone relate? Anyone have one of those? Or anyone, is anyone uh, one of those? Joseph, maybe in character, has a dream, and he tells his brothers about it. He says, verse 7, We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. When I was growing up, when I was younger, I used to sign my name Dan, Master of Dave, who was my older brother. <laughs> Sibling rivalry is nothing new. But I would say this is not the kind of dream you want to tell your older brothers. I mean, you can imagine their response. It's given to us. Verse 8, his brother said, you, do you intend to rule, reign over us? Will you actually rule over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Now, now perhaps you cut him some slack for the first time. He's like a naive you know, teenager. And, but do you think he'd learn from this? Like what he says, what response his older brothers have? But he has another dream. And he tells his brothers that again. And he not only tells his brother, he tells his dad this time. Verse 9, listen, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. This time even his brothers, I mean, even his dad rebukes him. What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? Joseph is a tattletale. He's boastful, he's self-centered, he's emotionally tone-deaf. Uh, perhaps not the best first impression of the main character of this story. He's not the only dysfunctional one, though. Look, let's look at Jacob, his dad, verse 3. Now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. If you are a parent here and you want to absolutely blow up your family, Pick a favorite child and let your other children know that this is your favorite child. And then proceed to give that child a very expensive gift and give your other children nothing. That's what Jacob does. He has an, a favorite child and he gives him an ornate robe. And it might be more than a symbol of, of favoritism because the, the only other place in scripture where this word is used, it's used for the garment of a princess. So perhaps this is a royal robe. And Jacob is communicating to his brothers. Uh, this is the, the son who's gonna be special. He's going to be in charge. He's gonna have honor and authority. And no surprise, how do the brothers respond? Verse four, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. They could not even speak a kind word to him. And friends, here's the thing. Jacob should have known better. 
Jacob had experienced how favoritism absolutely rips a family apart because his own father favored his older brother Esau. And his mother favored him and helped him steal the blessing from Esau. So that Esau was so enraged, he wanted to kill Jacob and Jacob had to flee. And here's the thing, Jacob continues the pattern in his own family. It's called generational sin. It's called, these are the patterns of my parents, and I'm so blind to them, I continue them in my own family. It's so easy to continue generational sin because sometimes we're blind. That's my, the way my parents were, and I'm just, I'm just doing what I saw. So it's not just Joseph that, that, that's dysfunctional. It's not just Jacob that is dysfunctional. It's his brothers. Because Joseph is favored, they struggle with jealousy and envy and hate such that they cannot speak a kind word. And perhaps you say, well, I, I understand those emotions, but they let them take root in their hearts. Hate becomes a blaze. It gets stoked. It becomes hotter and hotter in their hearts. Verse 4, they hate Joseph. Verse 5, they hate him more. Verse 8, they hate him even more. Hate, hate, hate. It's a family that is broken. A self-centered tattletale. A father who plays favorites and brothers who are burning with hate. It is a, a, a situation waiting to blow. I watched a few years ago a Hulu series entitled Little Fires Everywhere. It's a story about an affluent suburban family in Ohio. It's picture perfect from the distance, a picture perfect family, but as you, as you get to know each of the characters, you find out they each have secrets, simmering issues, Little fires everywhere. I think Genesis 37 is about little fires everywhere. And it's not just someone else's story. I think it's our story. I can think of times in our family that it's been little fires everywhere. And I think there are moments in your family when it's been little fires everywhere. Because the Bible says the reason why is because of the fall into sin. When Adam and Eve fell into sin in the garden, not only was their relationship with God broken, their relationship with each other was broken. It became between Adam and Eve a power struggle. And their family became broken when Cain killed, killed Abel. You see, since the fall, every family has experienced brokenness. It's like the Bob Dylan song, Everything is Broken. Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts. Broken words never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. And you're sitting here thinking, well, I'm not so sure. I'm not, so, I'm not convinced that we live in a broken, fallen world. I, I would encourage you to look at your relationships. In, in fact, Paul Tripp says, is look at your best, most satisfying relationship. I mean, so, so get that person in your mind. Your, your, most, your best and most satisfying relationship. Not your worst. Think about the best relationship that you have. Get that person in mind? Now ask these questions. Have you ever been hurt by what the other person said? Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever had to work through a misunderstanding? Have you or the other person ever held a grudge? Have you ever experienced loneliness even when things were going well? Have you ever been let down? Have you ever doubted the other person's love? Have you ever struggled to resolve a conflict? Have you ever felt used? 
Have you ever thought if I had only known? See, we go through those questions, and sometimes it's easy to pin the blame on the other person. You know, the, the, the problem is the other person. But let me remind you that in that experience, if you're just thinking of your spouse in that as I, as I was, uh, the other person is, can answer yes to all those questions about us. And if in, in thinking about it, it, the problem's always the other person, not me, and we change relationships in hopes of finding something better, guess what happens? We experience the same brokenness. Because the problem is not just the other person. The problem is you, and the problem is me. See, when we're looking at Joseph and his family, we're looking in the mirror because we struggle with self-centeredness. We struggle with generational sin, patterns of our parents that are so normal to us, we just continue them with our own kids. We struggle with envy and jealousy and hatred that burns. Here's a family that is broken. Here is the encouraging word. God uses this broken family to be the foundation of his people. This, this broken family is the foundation of his people. Joseph is a man whom God will redeem and refine and raise up to rescue his people. And this is how this story of indestructible hope begins. There's no one beyond hope. If you have a broken family, or if you're from a broken family, there's hope. Because secondly, there is a God who is at work. So secondly, let's look at this. There is a God who's at work. God is not mentioned at all in this passage, but his superintending influence is all over it. And the clue is this word dream, which is repeated four times in our passage. Bruce Waltke, a commentator on Genesis, says that there are three ways that God speaks and works in Genesis through theophany, through dreams, and through providence. Likewise, Gordon Wenham, another commentator on Genesis, says, throughout the ancient world, and Genesis is, is no exception, dreams were viewed as revelatory, as messages from God. Certainly the narrator saw these two dreams as prophetic. In other words, God's the one who sends these dreams to Joseph, and the fact that there are two dreams communicates that this is a matter firmly fixed by God. Later in Genesis 41, when Joseph is interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh, this is what he says. He says, the reason the dream is given to Pharaoh is in two forms, is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. So in the same way, God sends these two dreams to Joseph and will fulfill them. So again, God's not named in this passage, but his overshadowing presence is made known through these dreams. Through these dreams, at the beginning of this story of Joseph, God is communicating his purposeful end of Joseph's story. As a way of saying, God is like a director of this play. You never see the director on stage, but everything that happens on stage is the result of this director. Though you don't see him, the director is involved in every word, in every action, in every scene. And that becomes apparent in the story of Joseph, especially by the end. God is and has been and will be at work in every detail, in every moment, in every word, in every action, in every scene, bringing the story of Joseph to his appointed end. In the life of Joseph, there is a God who is at work. This, of course, is not the world that we live in today. 
Charles Taylor is a Canadian philosopher who wrote a very influential book in my circles called A Secular Age. And part of that book, he asked this question, how did we go in a relatively short period of time from a world where belief in God was the, the default assumption to our secular age in which belief in God seems to many to be unbelievable and untenable? Charles Taylor says it's not just a subtraction story. It's not just that we've taken God out of the picture and we had the same world, essentially. He says the secular world that we live in now not only allows but encourages us not to believe in God. It presents a new configuration of meaning. There is a new social imaginary, which he calls exclusive humanism. He identifies this process by which we have gotten rid of transcendence, which gave significance to former generations. And now we make this world ultimate, and this world is the ultimate source for meaning and purpose. So James K. Smith suggests that the net effect of this change is like being in the Toronto Sky Dome when the roof closes. Think of that. You're a spectator in the Toronto Sky Dome when the, when the ceiling closes. The people in the Sky Dome barely notice because their focus is solely on what is going on inside the Sky Dome. Since their attention is completely occupied by what is happening on the playing field, they don't even notice that they can no longer see the stars, that the heavens have, has clo has, have closed, that their life is suddenly now a closed system. The, the Charles Taylor goes on to identify that th this as the change that has taken place in our secular society. That we have gone from being a world where belief in God was the default assumption to a secular age where belief in God seems unbelievable and untenable. And yet he says this. Even though we have closed the sky dome and tried to get rid of transcendence, we are still haunted by transcendence. Julian Barnes, not a Christian, says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. <laughs> we have rid our lives of religion, and yet have become religious about everything else. Ask anyone who's tried to get tickets to the current Taylor Swift tour. There was such a great demand that Ticketmaster shut down. I, I would dare to say that Taylor Swift fans are more devout and committed than most Christians. Charles Taylor says that because we now live in a closed, flattened world with the heavens closed, we seek ways to satisfy our longing for transcendence in this world. The new sacred space of modernity, he says, had become the concert hall as temple, the museum as chapel, and tourism as a new pilgrimage. We have closed off the heavens, but we are haunted by transcendence. If you're, not a here, here this, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder if you've experienced this. Or have you been haunted by a sense of transcendence? Have you ever wondered to yourself whether there is something more? Has this closed, flattened reality of the material world left you disenchanted and empty? Have you left religion? only to find yourself becoming religious about everything else. The Bible invites us back into an enchanted world where the heavens are open, where there is a God who is at work, even in the darkest, most broken places, where the transcendent gives meaning and purpose to life. 
in this broken family, God breaks in. God breaks into the story through dreams and introduces them to a rea reality that is too great to imagine, that is too difficult to comprehend, that is too wonderful to believe. The brothers are offended. Jacob himself can't believe it. And yet, notice this little phrase at the end in verse 11. Uh, uh, Daddy Jacob says this, Jacob kept the matter in mind. See, Jacob had lived long enough with God to know that if God is at work, you can never say never. Because God can do things that are too great to imagine, too difficult to, to comprehend, too wonderful to believe. Years ago, I saw a movie called Simon Birch. Very memorable movie because it's about a boy who's born prematurely small and then his growth is stunted. So by the age of 12, 12 as he's a middle schooler, he's still so small that he's asked to play the role of the baby Jesus in the church Christmas pageant. Being so small, he's on the end of a lot of teasing. He experiences a number of challenges in life, but through it all, he, he keeps a, a very good-natured perspective. And he says over and over again in the movie, I don't know why God has made me like this. There must be a reason. I'm God's instrument. I'm God's instrument. And in the end, Simon Burst discovers that God has indeed made him unique with a special purpose that only he can fulfill. My friends, I would say that this is not just a wishful Hollywood story. This is what it means to live in a story of indestructible hope because there is a God who is at work who can do things too great to imagine, too difficult to comprehend, too wonderful to believe. There is a God at work. Then third and last, there is a Savior who redeems. Just as God is not mentioned, there is no Savior to be seen. To see him, we must look through the super wide-angle lens. This is not, I remind you, a standalone story. It's part of a larger redemptive story. There's a lot more to the Bible, you see. And therefore, to fully understand this story, I would suggest to you that we need to understand the larger story of redemption of which it is a part. See, in the same way that to fully explain what an acorn is, it's not just enough to say that it's brown, hard, it's a, it has a cap on it, it's found on the ground. Those are all true things. But unless you relate it to the oak tree which it becomes, you haven't really fully understood the acorn. And we cannot fully understand the story of Joseph until we understand the larger redemptive story of which it is a part. Jesus taught his disciples to read the Old Testament this way. On the road to Emmaus, remember that the Bible lesson he gave his disciples Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained what was said in all the scripture concerning himself. In other words, Jesus taught his disciples to see that all the Old Testament, every part of it, points to him, predicts him, prepares for him. He is the culmination of all the Old Testament. Jesus taught his disciples to read the Bible that way, their Old Testament. It's as Charles Spurgeon put it. Don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every hamlet in England... Wherever it may be, there is a road to London. So from every text in Scripture, there is a road towards the great metropolis, Christ. And my dear brother, your business is, when you get to a text, to say, now what is the road to Christ? I have never found a text that had not got a road to Christ in it. And if I ever do find one, I will go over hedge and ditch, but I would get at my master, for the sermon cannot do any good unless there is a savor of Christ in it. 
You see, if we do not see this story of Joseph in a larger context of a redemptive story of Christ, it becomes essentially a moralistic sermon. Don't be a tattletale. Don't play favorites with your kids. I don't think we have to come to church to hear a self-help, be, better, be a better person kind of message. The world does that just fine. Joseph is a beloved son who gets a royal robe from his father, who is despised and rejected by his brothers, who becomes the rescuer of those very same brothers who despised and rejected him. And he points to a greater beloved son who also received a royal robe from his father, who is despised and rejected by those around him, and who becomes a rescuer of those very same people who despised and rejected him. Jesus is that beloved son who received from his father a royal robe, who is despised and rejected among men, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, who is raised up to the right hand of his father, from which place he intercedes for us for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the true and better Joseph. You see, unlike Joseph, Jesus gave up his royal robe for our sakes, that we might be robed in his righteousness. Jesus' life was not taken from him. He laid it down for his brothers and sisters. Jesus was not a self-centered tattler who didn't know when to close his mouth. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Jesus is the true and better Joseph. Tim Keller, the one perhaps who has shown me the most how the Old Testament points to Christ, has said these things. Jesus is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden. His garden was a much better, a much tougher garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is a new and better Abel, who though innocently slain has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is a true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comforts and familiar surroundings to go into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is a true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. God said to Abraham, Now I know you love me, because you did not withhold your son whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say, Now we know that you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me. Jesus is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow we deserve, so that we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up, and discipline us. And then this. Jesus is a true and better Joseph who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. My friends, this story of Joseph ultimately points forward to the Savior who redeems us, just like all of the Old Testament does. Jesus is the reason why this is a story of indestructible hope. Because Jesus takes broken families and redeems them and refines them and raises them up. Consider with me today and in the coming weeks how God uses this broken family for his purposes. So I ask you, are you in a story of failure or a story of frustration or a story of emptiness or a story of disappointment? Look to the God who is at work. Look to the Savior who redeems us, a true and better Joseph, 
And your story will become a story of indestructible hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of Joseph by which you teach us and train us about who you are and who we are. Lord, help us to begin and learn to see our lives the lens of Scripture. Lord, that we will see that, that you are at work and that we have a Savior who can redeem us. Lord, we come to you in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of dark chapters, in the midst of winding ways. And we look to you who is at work, and we look to our Redeemer who saves us. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.